you're not using a, a very a, a heavy band and doing so in a variety of ranges and at your end ranges and a lot of end range strengthening, then you're missing, you know, where do plyos take you? They take you into ranges that you can't normally get. Where does throwing go? You go into ranges that you don't normally get into. If you don't strengthen at those end ranges that you can actively get on your own and with different perturbation training, then I don't think you're, you know, these guys are, I don't think you're adequately prepared to, to sufficiently stabilize themselves in these greater ranges. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Payer here with Ryan Croton and Jordan Oseguera. And today we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but we're going to focus on rehab and returning to performance and, and you know, what's involved with that. And we love to have different people on the program that have varied backgrounds. And I wanted to introduce you guys to Luke Novosel today. He is a, a doctor of physical therapy um, who's done a lot of different things in sports. Right now he's with the Mets uh, minor league program down in Port St. Lucie. And uh, Luke, first of all, great to have you on. Why don't you tell us basically what your role is right now? Yeah, definitely. I want to thank you guys for having me on. Uh, it's definitely awesome. I know I've watched some of you guys' podcasts and whatnot before, so definitely put some great stuff out there. Um, so definitely appreciate you guys having me on. Um, so just a little bit about, about me. So I um, so I went to, I grew up around Pittsburgh. Um, I went to undergrad uh, and got my uh, DPT from the University of Pittsburgh. I also had the opportunity to play baseball there. Um, I was a pitcher. So that's kind of where my initial interest and kind of passion um, with baseball kind of sparked with, you know, kind of continuing throughout uh, playing collegiately. Uh, and then after PT school, I uh, pursued a sports physical therapy residency at Houston Methodist um, at where, and I, where I really developed a kind of a true passion for working in sports worked with a number of the Houston based sports teams down there, um, which had, and had an awesome experience, made a, met a lot of great people and learned a lot in a very short period of time. Um, so that was an awesome experience to help to, you know, learn uh, a little bit more in, in depth, um, how to become a sports physical therapist and a little bit more of being less of a generalist and a little bit more of a, of a sports kind of PT from the rehab side of things and also get introduced to, you know, some of the different disciplines that kind of work within the, the high performance team. Uh, so that was awesome. Uh, and then after that, I went to a, I did my master's in athletic training at Boston university. Uh, and, and again, worked with a, a lot of great programs and, and had a great experience up there and learned a lot, a little bit more from the acute management things to kind of help to pair with a little bit of my, um, you know, more, I guess, rehab based background and, and, you know, had the opportunity to do some kind of strength and conditioning stuff up there as well. Um, kind of integrated throughout my, my clinicals and whatnot. Uh, and then in, uh, so, and then I started with the New York Mets, um, as primarily as their minor league, um, physical therapist, uh, in January, but kind of started, um, technically started with them in March when I moved down here. Um, the delay in COVID kind of really helped me to uh, the timing of things to, to take this job. And I'm super fortunate to have had, um, had it so far. So I primarily work as a physical therapist, but I've also um, held roles throughout the season as a uh, strength and conditioning coach or performance coach, uh, and also as an, uh, an athletic trainer with the St. Lucie Mets here. So I've kind of had a pretty, pretty diverse role. Um, it's kind of integrated me into a, to a bunch of different things and I've learned a lot and it's been an, an awesome experience so far. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing where this thing, you know, where this thing goes. Very cool. Ryan, I know you are the one who can most relate to, to what Luke's doing. Why don't you, um, why don't you lead us off here? Yeah. So I think Luke, the, the first thing that uh, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, that obviously elbow injuries are a growing epidemic in baseball. And, um, 
you know, I'm, I've really stuck to more of the biomechanical side, and I do review some strength-related data in terms of how these injuries are presenting themselves. But I'm, I'd like to see kind of in your experience, you know, you've been there for a little while. You know, what are some things that come to mind in terms of what causes these injuries for your athletes, or what what are certain characteristics that you might be seeing in them when they when they come into you? Yeah, so. So I think first off for us, at least specifically with this year and kind of some things that I know last year, obviously with COVID kind of happening, um, we had a lot of guys, specifically our minor league guys who had um, low or poor access to training facilities. Um, so I know that that had a significant impact on what these guys look like coming into spring training this year and really what their progressions look like in terms of how quickly they were ramped up to bullpens and how accurately they were able to follow uh, a lot of the the throwing programs a lot of guys did not come in prepared um, like they were supposed to and a lot of guys you know who are coming minor league guys who are coming in you know who are fighting for a position fighting for a spot you know it's kind of you know you do what you got to do to and to be healthy and stay healthy but, but most importantly to be on the field so uh, some of the guys you know were progressed a bit quicker than uh, I think they should have been um, just because they didn't have access to you know, to, to a catcher to complete some of the throwing programs that they did. So I think the, the low or poor access to training facilities, I think definitely limited, um, these guys and was a factor, um, this year, we, as a whole, I think, and as a whole, the, across the MLB, you know, UCL injuries were up this year and they have been over the past couple of years. And obviously that's been a growing, a growing trend, but, um, I think specifically just thinking back to these last couple of years with COVID, that's definitely been a contributing, um, factor, um, the other one that I that I definitely have seen uh, with these guys is in terms of weighted balls. Um, obviously, that's kind of been a big catch, you know, term here in the last last couple of years. Um, and I think thinking of how they're they're implemented in terms of if it's kind of implemented from more of a movement patterning perspective to improve, you know, pitch efficiency and, and arm mechanics and and overall movement patterns versus more of your velocity based, you know, program that that might be implemented at the wrong, you know, potentially at the wrong time with the wrong athlete, you know, with poor mechanics, with poor strength and whatnot, that's not necessarily being um, matched um, by what they're doing from a strengthening perspective. And as we all know, with the weighted balls, you get the quick gain and external rotation and potentially velocity, um, but you also need to have a subsequent match in their external rotation strength into those new ranges. So if you're not strengthening and stabilizing within the new range that they have, then you're going to be you know, putting that athlete at, at an increased risk of injury. So we found a lot of guys have been coming in who have done these weighted ball kind of velocity based training programs, but their, their rehab or not rehab, but their arm care programs have not sufficiently matched kind of what they've been doing to help to prep and provide that foundation for them as they're going through these velocity based programs. So I think that's definitely something, you know, we've seen. Um, and then definitely the shoulder, shoulder and core strength has been something that, that we noticed specifically this year with guys coming in with, with very low general shoulder strength and core strength, but also specifically into external rotation. Um, you know, something here, we like to look for something a little bit closer to a one-to-one -one ratio is kind of what we look for. A lot of the stuff in the literature will say somewhere in that 75 to 80%, you know, IR to ER rate or ER to IR ratio. Um, but we like to look for more of a one-to-one -one ratio and we were having guys coming in in like the 50%, 60 percentiles. And, you know, and that obviously is going to lead to, you know, if you don't have a strong and stable shoulder, if, if potentially you're combining that with poor mechanics and, and kind of a quick ramp up with COVID and whatnot, then you're going to be setting yourself up for, you know, for, for potentially injuries and whatnot. So 
um, I think that was something that, that we kind of found that, you know, with all of our spring training, initial intake testing that we, that we found with guys. Uh, and then I think just in building off of that, the low grip strength is something that we also have seen, um, being, being a thing is obviously, I don't think we haven't seen a ton of great ways to necessarily test grip strength outside of your general handheld dynamometer. Um, I know we've been playing with some things. I don't know if you've heard of, um, flexi grip. Um, I believe it's called it's a new company with, uh, yeah. Fingers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's something that we're currently looking into and going to be exploring for this upcoming season as a way to objectively, you know, uh, identify and, and, um, test their, the individual, uh, strength and endurance of the finger flexors, since we know that has such a big contributing component to the dynamic stability of the UCL to offload torque while they're throwing, um, specifically with the flexor digitorum superficialis kind of being the big one, um, for that, that the literature has shown. So I think that's something that hopefully we're going to see a with altering how our throwing programs are this year and how we're starting them a bit earlier to get these guys to adapt to the stresses of throwing a little bit over a longer period of time with some lower intensity throwing to really build that good foundation and then give them a much better foundation as we ramp up intensity closer to spring training. So I think that's going to be, you know, huge for the guys and, and also to, you know, just continuing to adapt, you know, some of our, um, you know, kind of testing methods and what we're looking for. But I think some of those things and specifically, you know, say this new invention that, you know, Dale and Adam kind of created, I think is going to be big for that with kind of objectively being able to, you know, map and monitor that, um, you know, the, the grip strength throughout the season, which is not something that we've had the ability to monitor, uh, and, and kind of objectively test previously the general, you know, hand grip strength that the handheld dynamometer, I think is kind of the best that we have at the moment, but I don't think is, is kind of where the future needs to be with, you know, with that stuff. So that's definitely something we noticed with guys coming in with very low grip strength numbers. And I think that's also just a general, you know, low exposure to load and kind of knowing what they, you know, need to be doing with the access, maybe what they're doing at specific facilities they're at or kind of what they're doing on their own. And, you know, I, obviously some states are very different than others with what their access to, you know, different places with COVID protocols and whatnot. But, you know, some guys we had in some states were just, they struggle to get access. And obviously then the cost of things with, you know, some, you know, different things happen with some of the salaries and whatnot throughout the season. So kind of put some of these guys in, in rough shape. So, um, so I think it's, it's again, you know, with all that being said, I think it's been a number of things, but I think the strength continues to be a big, a big issue, um, you know, that we see coming into spring training, which is something I think will always be an uphill battle, but something that we're trying to kind of combat as much as we can. Um, and then also to just, you know, generally with the weighted balls and how they're being implemented and, and how we're educating our players into, you know, the role that arm care has to play with weighted balls. So, and I also think these training regimens that we, we have a lot of these guys coming in that are doing these very like performance or functional strength-based training regimens. And, and it's very, you know, it's very different than a lot of the training regimens that we had, that we utilize within the organization. So I think one kind of thought that we've put towards for this off season is making sure guys know and are educated. We had a bunch of lower body injuries that when we're talking to these guys, what they were doing in the off season and why their numbers were low and X, Y, Z it's, they were doing all these more functional kind of, they weren't, they weren't really touching weights and they weren't doing a lot of the things that they were expected to do when they got here. And that obviously created a mismatch between what they're doing and the preparation that they did there and the athletic qualities that they were developing. And then what we were kind of, getting them to do. And then with the access of what you have on the road with the affiliates and whatnot. So 
I think that kind of played into some of the things why we had, you know, with some of the, our, you know, performance-based testing that we do upon with, you know, at the beginning of spring training, why some of the numbers were so low. And then we were trying to battle that while also the ramping up activity, but we're also trying to ramp up strengthening to get them to a certain base level of strength. And, you know, and then once you get into actual play, obviously your ability to actually truly strengthen drops a little bit, because obviously now you're more into a game focus. So I think it's, um, you know, we had a we battled uh, that a bit, you know, this year, and I think was more of a of an, of an off season kind of focus, and from an educational perspective of, you know, really trying to see what these guys are doing, where they are at, and kind of what their goals are, and then trying to match what the organization goals are, and from a performance coaches department's perspective, and what their goals are, and trying to figure out how to match that as best as possible. Um, so, yeah, I know that was a little bit off of a little bit uh, off the off track of what you were saying, but no, it was it was on, on man. It I, was I on. got a general observation on that as well. You're talking about kind of a couple things that link together on that is is the weight of ball training. Is you have on one extreme of it, if you only focus on your functional strength, then you miss out on what's going to be needed to to survive for a, a full professional season. You can get through college. You can get through high school if you just focus on functional strength. And you're probably going to get better because a lot of those guys are detrained. But to play at the highest levels is you 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 can't just focus on one type of training. Uh, you know, we, we had Carter Caps on a little while ago. And one of the great things we were talking about on that was, you know, it, it, you got to be well-rounded in the way you're training. You got to be able to, to touch a little bit of everything. Uh, but when it comes to those weighted ball programs, they're increasing that range of motion, just like you pointed out. And I would say a majority of them are focusing a lot on general strength of lower half production. You know, mm -hmm. we're squatting, we're deadlifting. There may be some cleaning involved. There may be some jumping, you know, explosive work. But that you, I think you nailed it perfect that I think a lot of them don't focus on the actual arm strength aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Is you see they're doing the shoulder tube. They're doing you know, the, the Mark pro or the complex and they're, you know, they're flushing those things out, but you're not strengthening the muscles. And if you're gaining that velocity, but you're not gaining strength with that, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but for every mile an hour you gain, you, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to add force to the, yeah. to the arm. Right. And Within if you're not an building yeah. that robustness to handle that additional force through your, through your shoulder and it's just your legs and your core and you're, you're strengthening everything around that and you're assuming that throwing is a strength building process, you're not even shooting at the same target. You're not even, you're not like, if you're, if you're bowling, you're like your ball's bouncing into the wrong lane, you know, and Ryan knows exactly what I'm talking about. Cause this guy, you know, they, they do curling where he's from, but when it comes down to the bowling aspect of it, it's like, you got to put the bumpers up and make sure they're at least knocking some pins down and adding in that arm strength, strength and work. Absolutely. I don't know if that made any sense. There's my first rant of the day on, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing so much on recovery, but we're never building strength in the exact range of motions that we're going to need to protect ourselves. Yeah, I, no, I, oh, oh, sorry, Luke, go ahead, man. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I know we see that a lot, especially a lot of the clinics that we send a lot of players where there's a significant underloading thing that happens a, at most clinics and just in a, in a lot of places in general. And I think a lot of the whole, a lot of guys come back and be like, oh yeah, what'd you do for arm care? It's like, oh yeah, I did all the bands. I did my you know, 10 pack, all this stuff. And we're just like, and our perspective here, and especially my perspective is bands are not a, a sufficient stimulus to provide any kind of true strengthening benefits. And if you're, you know, more band should be used for more of a warm up, um, and not as an integrated within the, say your arm care program, but should not be your primary mode of, of training. And I think if, if that is the case and you're not doing, 
any kind of additional like, um, you know, contrast methods of isometric, eccentric, you know, concentric kind of variations with, um, you know, with perturbations, you know, with these variety, uh, with a variety of different methods and, you know, with tempos in there to try, try to create any more of a strength and hypertrophy response. Like, I think you're, a lot of these people, I think are missing the boat and how their arm care programs are being constructed. I think that's where a lot of people run into, run into issues in season and also in their preparatory phase leading up to the season of what kind of baseline strength they come in with, because they're just doing a ton of banded stuff. And it's like, if you're not using a, a very a, a heavy band and doing so in a variety of ranges and at your end ranges and a lot of end range strengthening, then you're missing, you know, where do plyos take you? They take you into ranges that you can't normally get where to throw and go. You go into ranges mm -hmm. that you don't normally get into. If you don't strengthen at those end ranges that you can actively get on your own and with different perturbation training, then I don't think you're, you know, these guys are, I don't think are adequately prepared to, to sufficiently stabilize themselves in these greater ranges, you know, during these weighted ball training programs or during, um, you know, or during pitching as a whole and kind of being able to then sustain that throughout the season. Cause you know, you get acute losses, soft tissue adaptations and strength losses immediately after you pitch. And that can be after just 20, 25 pitches of throwing. So if we're not creating and utilizing and enforcing these arm care programs, and then they're doing all these weighted balls and throwing, and they're not adequately maintaining that strength base, um, you know, and also from a general soft tissue perspective, I don't think, you know, I think that's a huge vote that a lot of people miss, especially, you know, in these, you know, with other kind of outside PT clinics, but also in some of these performance places that are trying to provide holistic care of what they're doing. But you're not really including a good arm care program. I don't think you're including a good holistic approach to that athlete to prepare them for the demands of that up upcoming season. You, you pointed another thing out there. You're saying they don't give the stimulus you need with the bands and Ryan, I'm sure you can give a little more context to this, but this is just my observation as being a pitching coach and being on the outside, looking in to a lot of the medical and the strength community is it seems like a lot of those private clinicians when they're, they're getting someone ready, a lot of minor leaguers train at, you know, private PT clinics, things like that, is they're giving them a one pound dumbbell, a two pound dumbbell, and they're doing these, these reps. And they're like, well, you're not going to get hurt on my watch, but then they leave and they haven't prepared their tissues to handle a hundred mile an hour fastball or 115 pitches or pitching back-to-back -back days, or just going through spring training. Spring training is not an easy thing to go through. You're standing around all day, you're eating crappy food. You know, maybe it was like that in Port St. Maybe it's not that way for you guys, but where I was at in spring training, you know, the food was just basically fried bacon fat. Um, <laughs> Ryan can go more in depth on that as well. But they're they're taking this, this approach to where they look at the strength coaches and they go, well, you guys are just being, you know, re reckless and neglectful. You're asking these guys to lift heavy weights fast. And then the strength coaches are going, you're being neglectful. You're asking them to list, lift lightweight slow. Like, where is it that we can meet in the middle on this? And Ryan, if you want to give a little more context to what it is I just stated there, yeah, um, I think that I, would be something cool to talk about. I can, but I, I'm, I'm telling you, I've been sitting here with butterflies in my tummy just before we go any further. Because I mentioned all, the food. Yeah, no, <laughs> all, the, all the things that Luke has been talking about. These are things that our company answers, you know, and, you know, obviously we're talking about training theory, but we're, we need to be evidence led. You know, this is an issue. So the, the problem, the biggest problem that I see in baseball, and it's one that, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere, is that what happens in the offseason? You know, our injuries that we see in the game, generally, it's just like what Luke was talking about. Hey, they've come from a weighted ball program. They've had an offseason of probably deficient training. We don't know where they're at, you know. And, and this product that we offer 
is portable enough that it travels with them that we don't miss those observations. You know, when I, when I was in my previous position as director of performance integration for the Angels, I gulped every offseason. I prayed, I gulped. We called uh, strength coaches constantly. We communicated with athletes. But, you know, they're, they're evaluating different things than what we did in our organization. We're trying to get the athletes to do testing that we believed in the offseason, but it wasn't the right mental model for their coaches. There was a big disconnect. And in, in a world now that we have this technology, it's important that we focus on the distal aspect of throwing. You know, we talk about arm strength. <laughs> And, and, you know, Jordan, you talk about light and slow, you know, uh, and then fast and heavy, you know, like this is, we talked about uh, tempo training and all those kinds of things. This is the reason why we need to be data led. We need to understand what the athlete needs. You know, if the athlete has very low isometric force, we need to improve isometric force. You know, if they don't have great endurance, we need to improve the repetitiveness of maximum strength. We need to be able to have, uh, if they have arm speed issues, you know, if they don't have great arm speed, we need to improve that with eccentrics. We need to improve fascicle length. There's so many things that we can now uncover with this technology. And I'm, I'm just excited. Like it's got to get in the hands of guys like Luke. It's got to get in the hands of people that they want to observe. They want to be able to individualize. You know, we didn't even talk about individualization, but a lot of programs, they're doing something that's general. And I believe that what's happening is we're training athletes. We're under-training them. We're under-preparing them for the game. But we're, we're probably training them into imbalances. That's my biggest concern. And it was my concern when, you know, we had an expensive dynamometry piece when I was with the Angels. And, and I felt better because now we have some indications like, what Luke's saying, we didn't have a, a player that was one-to-one -one, or they were reversed. They had very high ER and very low IR. You know, and we were able to then make those determinations, but there's a long way to go. You know, there's a long way to go. I mean, he, the, for those listeners who are listening to this podcast, what he had gone through and his description of what he has seen related to injuries in, in, uh, in the elbow, this is unanimous. What he's saying is unanimous. It is everywhere. And it's not just pro baseball. It's happening at the grassroots. And, and this is the thing. How are we going to put a stop to it? We, we need to change behavior. We need to, we need to start thinking about uh, data and, and evidence-led approaches. It's available now. We don't need to guess anymore. You know, Luke, you hit on such great things. A athletes gain length in season. They, they, they improve their mobility. And then all of a sudden, if they don't have strength, it's like, it's like taking a thick rubber band that's like a tire and you turn it into a thin rubber band that you can pull apart and stretch and stretch and stretch and it fails, you know, and we just, we need to have this approach. I mean, I, I put Jordan to the test when he was with the angels, you know, he was, he was scouring data, you know, every time, every homestand, um, it was a big dump of data because we collected de uh, details on our athletes and you know, when they would get hurt. They get hurt on the road. A lot of our athletes got hurt on the road because we weren't being responsive enough with our observations. And this is the thing, the off season and when they're not around the team, you know, is a big, big worry. And then, I mean, one of the things that happened with, with our previous coordinator, and I'm thinking of you, Luke, because physical therapists for people that don't know what physical therapy is like inside the walls of a major league team especially at the minor league level, if you have a tons of injuries, 
you can burn a dude out or a woman out. You know, you can burn them out by having too many injured athletes because now you're caring for more than 20 kids and you're trying to give them individualized attention. And so like, I can, I can just see this helping because it's player led, you know, maybe, maybe Luke, you could kind of talk to us because we need to get a perspective from you. You're an athletic trainer, you're a physical therapist about how time consuming it can be to collect data on your athletes, you know, especially if you don't have interns and those kinds of people doing it for you. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a huge barrier, especially for those, say, for example, for athletic trainers at the affiliate levels where they don't, they don't potentially have as many hands or access. We obviously here at the facility, we can only grab um, a little bit more and have some more access to, to some of that stuff because everything is always here. People are here, but at the affiliates, that is a huge challenge to, to make sure you're staying up with, you know, assessing all of the objective measures that we, that we set forth for, you know, the affiliate kind of staff to, to kind of make sure they're obtaining their, you know, uh, testing. So that's definitely a challenge, but, you know, I think that's, that's probably one of the, the things that I know we're going to be continuing to revamp is how we can make that the most accessible and, and what is the minimum we need to test, but also what we need, the minimum, but what the maximum we need to, to achieve, um, you know, to get value out of that we're actually going to be able to practically use and apply to our athletes. Yeah. So, so give me an idea. I mean, obviously ERIR, what, what are you trying to, to test and evaluate in general? Um, you know, when they show up day one. Um, yeah. So some of the things we test, we normally take guys through um, like a MSK testing. So we'll normally do that normally entails uh, an upper extremity and lower extremity kind of range of motion uh, and strength evaluation. So we, normally we'll look at, uh, shoulder ER IR. We'll look at cross horizontal uh, cross body adduction. We'll look at flexion pinned, um, pinning the scapula down. Also flexion unpinned. Um, we'll look at hips ER IR. Um, we'll look at straight leg raise, straight leg raise with a core brace, um, ankle range of motion. We'll do some portions of the SFMA top tier. Um, we'll do the grip strength assessment with the handheld dynamometer. Um, we use, we utilize this apparatus or this uh, testing uh, called the, t it's a tin deck. It's basically a portable um, kind of like a dynamometry type based unit that we use um, for IR and ER assessment. Um, we also use that for core rotation testing and a row um, and a, um, a prone row test. Uh, and then we do a isometric mid thigh pull. Um, we'll do a counter movement jump uh, and we will do a hamstring like single limb isometric test. Um, and normally that's, that's pretty much the battery that we'll use. And then with that kind of what, what Ryan was saying, based on what we get from that data, say specifically within spring training. And then when we're testing these at interval time points, typically every four weeks for somebody who's uninjured, every two weeks for somebody who's injured for us, we normally get these, a lot of these um, uh, measures done every couple, every two weeks, um, you know, we'll create individualized programs for them. Cause obviously we want to see what, what um, initial, um, you know, athletic qualities they have and which ones they don't have. And then how we can kind of blend all that together to build up the necessary foundation to get them on the right maintenance program um, for them throughout the season to help to minimize, you know, their risk of injury for what we know, you know, the demands of the game are going to be and what those different adaptations are going to be throughout the season. So we definitely individualize each one. Every player has this like individual or uh, individual like prep meeting after spring training. So it gives an athlete a chance to, 
you know, sit down and be like, Hey, look, this is kind of where I'm at. This is what I was doing in the off season. This is kind of how I feel like things went. These are my goals for this season from a, from a training um, standpoint, this is what I've been doing for arm care. And then it gives, it's a sit down with kind of with the performance staff, with mental skills, um, with nutrition, you know, with, uh, you know, PT, AT performance coaches, kind of the whole, the whole team as a whole. And it gives everybody a chance to kind of talk about, you know, get on the same page, everybody kind of discuss their goals and create one kind of blended plan and blended program together. Cause we know, you know, a lot of these guys are their professional athletes. We have to respect things that have gotten them to this level. And a lot of them do a lot of really good stuff. And we don't want to be the ones to be like, Oh, we want you, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. If they're already doing a lot of stuff that's very similar in accomplishing, you know, improving shoulder internal rotation or hip IR, we don't want to then give them, we might want to give them additional options to achieve that same goal, but we want to know that, okay, you're already on a really good program. Maybe this adapt this a little bit and give you some ideas that, you know, might happen and then modify it throughout the season. Cause it's always a constant fluid process, but everything we do is definitely very individualized because you can't treat two athletes the same. No two athletes throw the same, no two athletes move the same. It's, you know, it's gotta be highly individualized. And a lot of these testing, yeah, it's generally done with everybody, but they're all implemented and practically applied in, in different ways that are going to best promote that athlete's growth and, you know, safety and health. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I love that. I mean, you've, you've got to have the athletes buy in and I was just, that's what I was waiting to hear is the communication process. Once you have that plan out and it seems like you're getting everybody involved. I think yeah, that's I mean, great. We, yeah, we definitely have a very much so like a high performance team model here. And that's something that I've, some of my experiences in the past um, in in various sports, I definitely have not seen a, a true collaborative high performance team. And I would say we do a very good job here, especially our collaboration with the major league staff is incredible, especially with the major league, um, with our director of rehab and the other, and the assistant physical therapists up there, the communication is awesome and collaboration between them we have is great from the minor league perspective. It's, I mean, we have daily morning meetings every day to talk about each athlete, what they're doing for the day, anything that we've encountered, with them, you know, say from each individual department, kind of, is there any kind of concerns that we need to think about or kind of monitor or modify for the next day? Do we need to add in something, take away something? Um, you know, that's, it's definitely a day-to-day thing. So we know exactly what our day is going to look like from, you know, obviously there's some, you know, curveballs that are thrown in there, but for the most part, we know, you know, what, what we need to do, where we need to be, where the athletes need to be and what they need to get on a day-to-day basis to, you know, truly be a player development department and also like a high performance team. I think everybody builds off of each other. I mean, I'm in the, obviously in the weight room a lot because I thoroughly have a passion for strength and conditioning. Like I, I love being in there and value everything that performance coach does. I've learned so much from them from a running mechanic standpoint, how to create periodized programs, how to, you know, really just basically create the entire, you know, program from, from an in-season perspective and now moving into the off season and just how they can, you can give them specific restrictions that an athlete might go within and then how creative they can be to adapt each individual program based on those specific restrictions and, and grab six different exercises based on one little restriction that you give them. So they have all these different training options for, to achieve a similar goal with things. And it's, it's incredible what, you know, I've learned from our performance coaches here uh, and the value that they provide to the athletes and to the organization as a whole. So um, I definitely appreciate that with, with the organization of, you know, with how, you know, with, with the high performance model, I think kind of is a catch-all term and I don't think always gets implemented in the right way, but I, you know, I definitely have learned and seen a lot of, a lot of great things here, which I think is, is awesome. It's something I want to continue to promote, you know, throughout the rest of my practice and career, you know, kind of moving forward, but you know, it's, it's definitely, we, we don't try to, 
we don't try to just measure things just to measure. We try to measure things to actually, actually use it and apply it to our athletes and, and, you know, to provide the best possible chance for them to actually develop as a player specifically at the, at the minor league level. There, there's a lot of good things that got said there. And one of the, yeah. one of the ones that stood out was if a player's doing something that's already getting the result you want, you don't take it away. You may give them some additional options of things like, Hey, you know, these are some things we would also recommend to go with that. And not every organization, but a majority of organizations, it seems like when a player comes in the door, they're looking at what can I take from this guy to make him do what I want him to do. And then they're, cons- then they're, con- why is this guy not buying in? He's uncoachable. He's this player's a jerk. Yeah. It's like, well, you're not allowed to do any of the things you did yeah. that we just paid you money for, for doing. And now when you get here, we're going to tell you how wrong you are and everything. It's like, well, you must be doing something right. You've got to this point without any help from these guys so far. You know, and instead of being collaborative, they're being confrontational and saying, you can't do that. And one of the things that, you know, Ryan, if we need to cut it out, you can tell me we can, I don't know, Bart will figure that out. I don't know how to work any of this stuff. But one of the things that got a lot of pushback from me and Ryan was we wanted collaboration between all the departments. And mm-hmm. Ryan and myself both got told we over communicate on things. They mm-hmm. said it's too much communication. We had these meetings, we had these performance, you know, huddles, we had all these things going on. We'd be sitting in there, we'd be talking, we'd be getting the, hey, here's what this player's been doing. Well, what has he been communicating? Doesn't matter what he's been communicating. This is what we, it's like, look, we need to know what this guy's talking about. So when those curveballs that you mentioned get thrown, we can at least adjust and hit a foul ball and not strike out, you know, yeah. like <laughs> we need to be aware of what's going on with those guys. And it sounds like, you know, I've talked to a couple of guys within the Mets organization within the last three months, I'd say. And it sounds like on the coaching staff is this is one of the first times and I've, I've done some consulting with previous groups in the Mets in the past. And this sounds like probably the first time the Mets have actually been a united front mm-hmm. to where previously there'd been situations where it's like, Hey, this guy from, from strength and conditioning has this, ah, who cares? Doesn't matter what he thinks we're pitching coaches. Ah, it's a pitching coach thinks this doesn't matter. We're strength coaches. We don't need to listen to this guy to where now there's actually this collaborative process Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe people are just telling me great things. I don't know. No. But it sounds like the Mets are starting to move in that right direction. And they're yeah. starting to get the right people in and the right positions. They're listening to the player, which is so important. Because if you have 300 players in your organization, it might be from seven different countries Yeah, between those 300 players. Yeah. And those seven different countries have seven different worldviews, probably 300 different worldviews and, and 500 different philosophies somehow between 300 people. And the more they can get those players bought in and pulling on that same rope, the easier it is when there actually needs to be an intervention of we need to adjust your pitch shape or we need to change your programming. There's a trust there as opposed to day one. I'm not going to say the organization in the Northeast that won't allow they'll draft people that throw curveballs. And then they don't let them continue to throw curveballs once they sign them. And it's like, well, you can only throw a curveball if you if you're in the big leagues with us. It's like, well, you just paid this guy second round money to not throw. Now he's just a fastball guy. He doesn't have a breaking ball all of a sudden. So it's like that that builds the distrust. It burns bridges before you even need to cross one. And it sounds like you guys are going about it in a good way. Long story short. Yeah, I would like. To, I think definitely there's some some significant strides like you mentioned that have been made. I know specifically like I, we we use our pitching coaches i i couldn't say i'll give a shout out to our pitch rehab pitching coach kyle driscoll he is 
literally one of the most knowledgeable people in terms of pitching with mechanics, how to use weighted balls to improve movement patterning and what he knows about the analytics of pitch shape and kind of what things look like. And I've learned so much from him. And I think you can have the strongest athlete possible, but if they don't move well and they don't pitch with good mechanics, you're most likely going to, they're going to be set up for injury and they're most likely not going to have their potential optimized. Yeah. Guys so like that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah, so exactly. So guys who are kind of a little more behind the scenes from the biomechanics perspective, like that stuff is so huge. And I think I thought I had some understanding of pitching mechanics and kind of what it took from that perspective until I came here and my mind was just like, whoa, you, you got humbled very quickly of like, in terms of what all actually goes into that and, and how to cue and actually coach things and, and kind of what goes, you know, what actually goes in and through a pitching coach's mind. And I know I've tried my best to, to pick their brains as much as possible. Cause I think there's so much to be learned there. And I think the best, best way for these player development, you know, um, organization or entities to kind of grow is to have that collaborative approach because everybody's got their own specialty and each part has an individual, you know, role in creating player development and getting that athlete to reach their full potential. And like I said, I've just been amazed by what goes through a pitching coach's mind, how they can look at something and see something. I'm like, I didn't even think about that. Like, yes, that makes so much sense. Like guys that we have here, they, a lot of guys want to come down to Port St. Lucie because they come out throwing better, more effectively. They're throwing harder. They're, they're just everything about them. They're stronger. And that's kind of what I know we down here want to put out is we want people to not want to be injured, want to come down here, but those who come out, they want to use reconditioning, rehab and reconditioning as an opportunity to really revamp and, and kind of, you know, recondition their body to, and work on some of the deficits or deficiencies that they had before and come out on the better side. So I think that, you know, that collaborative approach is, is I think key and obviously a lot harder to actually implement than, you know, it's a lot easier said than done, but I think there's specifically to here, there's been some very positive strides that have been, been made. And I think a lot of people are very much so trying to promote that at least definitely within here at the, at the spring training kind of complex here year round, it's been, it's been awesome to see the growth of just what we've had here, you know, with that collaboration. So I think that's something that, that everybody should strive to achieve, you know, and be humbled and have some professional humility to not be like, I, I know everything. It's like, you don't know everything. It's, you know, you got to ask if you don't know, you got to seek to understand and to learn. And, and every, like I said, I've learned a ton since I've been down here and I know I would, will continue to learn a ton each year that I'm down here. That's why I, you know, this is a great spot to be in. So, you know, obviously hope I continue to advance my way upwards, but um, you know, at the same time, you got to appreciate where you're at and kind of the things that you can learn in each individual role that you have. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of good things to be gained for sure. The, um, high performance model, man, that you're talking about people who want to enact those things, it's exactly what you said. They have to be humble. They have to recognize everyone's got a place at the table but the one thing, too, that I think is important is having some centralized um, data that, that everybody kind of understands, you know, and, and for me, my message is always strength matters most. And I think this is a place in which we can educate the skill coaches that may not have the understanding of, of joint specific strength so that they can understand that when an athlete does have a change and we made program changes often based on this, sometimes we <laughs> took athletes out of competition if they didn't have certain strength measures, but we can utilize this now. Okay. This thing impacts the training program 
and the preventative program, this particular strength measure now affects workload, you know, or we can look at the dietitian, you know, is there something going on nutritionally that's affecting this athlete's strength? And so, you know, that's a beauty. That's what I'm excited about this company for is it's going to give people a common place. You know, we need to educate them. And I like what you're talking about, that this, these kind of organic conversations that you're having with the people you work with, you're educating them, they're educating you. People are understanding how everyone fits. And I think when we get to that place where strength becomes the central figure, they know that, you know, you were saying, obviously, mechanics are important, but it doesn't matter, in my opinion, how you throw if you're weak, you're still going to be exposed to greater injury risk, right? So if there's a way in which we can tier these things, you know, we can make changes. And one of the other things that we looked at um, with the angels, I talked to a, a high school athletic trainer and he said, you know, I, I give this report to my coaches. It's a treatment report. They, they basically, you know, get an understanding of how I'm working with the athlete. They're not injured, but you know, basically when I'm putting my hands on them and doing therapy. And, and when he mentioned this, I was like, you know what, that's crazy. I'm like, you know what we listen to every day? We listen to the injury report. You know, we listen to the players that are hurt and can't perform, but we don't know what they're, they're, they're receiving as far as therapy and treatment. They're still able, you know, for us as a strength coach, they show up in the weight room. They're not on an injury report. We just train the heck out of them. You know, they go on the field um, they're not on the injury report. We throw the heck out of them, you know? And, and then when this report came about and we started to talk about this, this is again, a central place that we could all talk about. It's like, this is your, your, if you have a, a green, yellow and red light system, this is your yellow light. You know, when this athlete saying, Hey man, he's, he's, he's got a lot of lumbar sacral pain, uh, pain and we're doing a ton of work there. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's weird. I have him squatting at 75% of his RM. Um, you know, I got to change something here to, to get this athlete out of pain and dysfunction. And, and I think, you know, those things are going to be important. When we can all, can we can match the two, you know, we have a good concept of strength. And then, you know, our strength coaches, our pitching coaches, you know, the, the people that are working with our athletes have a good concept of treatment. You know, what's going on anatomically for this athlete? it'll put all those pieces together that I think you guys have really solved. It sounds like. Um, and, and I think the way that you're monitoring too, as rigorously as you can and as often as you can, and, and being able to, to tear the athlete, you know, here's my injured guy. They need a little bit more attention here. Here's my healthy guy. We're going to watch him. I think you got a really good process. You know, that's a really good model. Hey, I'd like to, um, focus back on injury, you know, and we're seeing injuries at every level right now. And I, I'm just curious when someone comes to you after Tommy John and how do you go about setting up the milestones that they need to hit um, to return to play and return to performance? And if I'm a high school kid who's coming off Tommy John, what am I doing that's going to, you know, what advice would you give them for their milestones that they've got to hit if they don't have a team working with them? Yeah, I think definitely at the at the high school level, it's a bit it can be a bit more challenging with the access of what you you know what you have. It's a little mo bit more incumbent upon you know the kid uh, himself to you know to actually you know carry out some of the home um, like rehab and programming, say with the high school athletic trainer or you know their whatever physical therapist they're seeing you know to to kind of for rehab. Um, so I definitely think that makes it a bit more challenging. 
um, kind of starting out specifically to kind of some of the things we, you know, we'll, we'll do here. And I've seen and done in the past, I think, like I mentioned with that rehab entrance meeting, I think is, is an awesome, is an awesome way to start. Like I said, it gets athlete in the room, gets all the members of the high performance team in the room, you know, gets everything of starting out from, you know, your, you know, your nutrition, your sleep, and, you know, your, um, mental, mental skills coaches and your from a mental health. Cause I'm, I'm pretty, you know, big on that treating your mental health, like you do your physical health. Cause rehab is challenging. Anybody who's been taken out of their you know environment, especially in season, you know, what that does to you from a psychological perspective. Um, so I think if you don't have your mind or head in the right space, and I don't think your body is going to be able to follow, and that's only going to create this, you know, these thought viruses and these other, you know, negative things that happen. So, you know, I'm a big proponent of that. We have mental skills coaches here that I think are a huge kind of part of our, you know, collaborative team that we have here and that are, you know, full-time with us, which is awesome. So I think that's great. But again, it gives time for player and like performance team and staff to kind of merge together and kind of talk out what general, you know, timelines might be like, we, we definitely don't like to be truly time-based in terms of a lot of our progressions. We like to be a little bit more criterion based, but at the same time, in order you're expected at these various time points to meet these specific criteria based on, you know, seeing a lot of different athletes. So it's like, you don't, we don't with anything like to necessarily be time-based, but at the same time, at the end of the day, front office needs numbers and they need to know generally when athletes are going to be back. So in some way you kind of have to be time-based, but you expect, like I said, that you expect them to meet certain criteria. So that's kind of how we'll pitch that to an athlete. These are our general time points. If you meet these specific criteria at these various time points, you will continue to move throughout. We always give them the caveat that not many TJ rehabs go without some setback. Normally you'll encounter something where you got to make some small modification in the program, nothing that's going to significantly alter, you know, the overall timing or progression of things. But, you know, I like to give them a pretty good, you know, layout, be like, look, this is an opportunity for you to use the rehab program process as an opportunity um, to recondition and reinvent your body. So things that you had wanted to work on in the past and maybe didn't get around to it or didn't go super well. Let's use that as a time to improve X, Y, Z thing based on your spring training numbers of certain things. Let's clear up all that and improve all that shoulder strength or some kind of range of motion stuff down. Let's clear up all that. You're, you know, you want to gain a little bit more, you know, strength in your legs. Let's use an opportunity for that. Let's really match what you want to do and what we want to do and what we feel is best for you and what you feel is best for you. And let's create that good plan. Um, But also letting them know that, you know, that process is long. I mean, it's, 13, 14 months, you know, for a whole and sometimes up to 15 months for a starter. I mean, it's a long, it's a long call. It's a grind. It's when you get to that bull, the dog days of TJ rehab, which is in the bullpen progression. I mean, you know, we'll have our guys throw up to 15 bullpens sometimes based on, based on the athlete. I mean, it, it, it can be a grind. It takes a while. So, you know, definitely kind of preparing them for that mental battle, I think is huge because the more they know up front, the more they'll be able to prepare their mind for and kind of understand and recognize what it's, what it's like. Um, you know, cause obviously it's, it's a challenging process. So like I said, the more they know, the better they're going to be prepared for it. Um, so that's kind of generally how I like to kind of preface it and kind of answer any questions that they have on the front end. Um, so they can make sure that they're in the right headspace for that. Um, Transparency. Exactly. Yeah. I, I like to hold it, give them any, <coughs> need any like anecdotal examples, or if they need like, look, this is kind of what I would expect you to be feeling those first seven to 10 days when you're in a, you know, you're in a splint, like these are some things we're going to do. This is how quickly we're going to get you into, you know, to, uh, into the weight room. This is how we're going to modify things. This is generally when you're going to start, you know, playing catch. This is generally when you're going to do this and keep giving them those little tidbits of things to look forward to. Cause that, 
those, the anticipation of some of those timelines, you just tell a kid that, you know, it's going to be a long process. You're going to throw somewhere around this time frame. They have that in their mind the whole time. I can't wait to get to that time point because I just want to pick up a ball again because you know, that's what all these pitchers live to do is they just want to touch a ball. They want to throw a ball. So giving them some of those, you know, time points, like I said, gives them, you know, a little bit of, of that kind of anticipation and kind of motivation to kind of keep going. Um, Obviously always putting the caveat that things go slower or potentially slower. You can't, you can slow down healing. You can't speed it up. So we always, you know, need to make sure we're respecting the biological healing and stuff like that. So, um, but generally we'll have, you know, stitches in seven, seven to 10 days. And we take them out of that. We'll put them in a, in a hinged elbow brace. Um, as soon as they're in the hinged elbow brace, we'll normally use some kind of, um, water resistant, um, kind of tegaderm or bioocclusive, put that on their incision. They're in the weight room. As soon as, as soon as they get their stitches out, that tegaderm, and, and tega, tegadermal bio, bio occlusion. Bio occlusive. Uh, yeah. It's for just, those, it's just those of the, I, again, I'm not asking for me. It's for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, it's just a, it's a water resistant patch, uh, you put over the incision. So basically it keeps any, um, any water, um, or kind of sweat or bacteria out of the incision. Cause it, you know, until that heals, that's obviously what you're trying to prevent as much as possible. So, um, we'll get them in there and we'll basically use that, put them in quote unquote, upper extremity protection mode. So they'll just in there, say, if it's a right arm, they'll use, they'll do full lifts on their left arm. They'll do lower body lifts, obviously modified with a, you know, we'll get them into a trap bar, uh, or sorry, not a trap bar, a safety bar and kind of get them going with their lower body stuff. And, you know, they're pretty much using everything on full except for their injured limb. And they start that as soon as stitches come out. Um, and then it's, it's kind of starting them with some isometrics and some lower level form stuff and get them rolling with gripping as much as possible. I like to emphasize and get them rolling, going on active motion and, and strengthening stuff as soon as possible. Um, you know, normally that's done a little bit at lower level, but you're trying to maximize, you're loading their shoulder up as much as you can. You know, you use cup weights, you start above the elbow until they can start, you know, until you can start unlocking the brace, you want to load the shoulder and the tissues that you can load as soon as quickly as possible. You want to try to minimize that gap, even though it is a long process, but you want to try to minimize the deficits that they're going to, or the, the, the decrements and strength that they're going to get generally throughout the process, at least early on. So we're trying to load them up as soon as possible, get them going with their individual grip strengthening, not just doing general grip. You're doing two finger grip strength, middle finger grip strength. And then, um, you know, your two finger ring and your pinky finger isometric holds with strengthening with manuals, um, various different tubing gripping exercises. I mean, trying to be as creative as possible to give them variety with in their program early on where you're not really doing a ton of stuff. But I think guys here are surprised at how we're doing hip manuals. We do a lot of manual resistance here, a ton of manual resistance with perturbations with rhythmic staves. Um, you know, a lot of manual resisted exercises in a whole, just to give them that variability within their training. Um, you know, we do a lot of balance stuff. We do a lot of hip manual work. We have a hip manual series that we'll put guys through that just absolutely blows them up. And they are just, can't walk for the next five minutes. And it's great because they, you know, they're coming out of there with that whole, you know, a bit more of a, a whole body fatigue um, that I think uh, can be a missing, missing link. Cause we know that balance deficits and issues has a translation to, you know, how well you move and the balance you have and UCL injury risk on the mound. So, you know, we incorporate balance hip stuff, core stuff is incorporated every Monday and Friday. We kind of break things down with like our high days. We keep our highs on the highs and lows on our lows. So we'll go second Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Monday, Friday, guys are doing a course circuit. That's again, as soon as they get their stitches out, we try to keep them in the first 10 days where they're not sweating. 
um, try to try to minimize because again, that is an incision that you don't want to get them to sweat very much early on. But you know, we'll incorporate a lot of balance stuff and some lower level stuff just to kind of keep some stimulus into the tissue until you know they come out and they come into they get into a brace. But it's really training them up. It's you protect the injured body part and you basically train the crap out of them the rest of the ways. And we tell our strength coach, no right arm. It's like, they got 35 different variations of things that they can do and train, you know, and train things in a different way, um, you know, to, to create, to achieve these different, you know, goals that we have for them. So I think that part of it's great, but they're, I think guys, when they come here, they're very surprised. And we let them know that early on. It's like, look, as soon as you come out, and get into a brace, you're in the weight room. You're going to be doing pretty much full lifts of everything except for that right arm, you know, to help to prepare their mind for that. Cause a lot of guys after think it's going to be, Oh, it's going to be a big lull phase. We're going to do light weights, one pound, two pound, three pounds. Like, no, I want to get you going. I want you building up as much as we can. I want to minimize that as much as possible. As long as we're, you know, uh, we're respecting the healing process and not getting any irritation within the flexors and whatnot, which I haven't seen as much with some of the newer, uh, UCL, you know, approaches of what they're doing in the flexor, um, common flexor, like splitting approach that they're, that they're doing. I haven't seen as much of that. So it's really get them rolling and doing as much as they can as early on and creating as much variability within the training that we can, um, to, to create, you know, always new stimuluses, new variability, keep the athletes engaged, I think is huge. Um, and then once they get out closer to like 10, 12 weeks, we'll start or eight, eight, 10 weeks, we'll get them up into that 90, 90 strength and we'll start, start their progressions up in there. Um, we'll normally we start plyos around 14 or 12 weeks, one arm plyos at four or at 16 weeks or sorry, 12 weeks, 14 weeks, one arm plyos, 16 weeks. We'll start our like weighted ball plyo care drills, which again, we, we don't use that as a, from a velocity gain standpoint, we use that from a movement patterning and efficiency standpoint. And that's where our rehab pitching coach plays a huge role for us because they've now just spent 16 weeks developing strength and building that great, great foundation with our performance coaches, with us and with everybody as a whole, developing that base. And now we need to start to blend all that strengthening stuff and rehab stuff now start to blend in more of the pitch pitching specific work. And so we'll start to integrate our plyos for that from more of a movement patterning standpoint um, to improve our pitch efficiency and, and how well these guys move and then start to blend that over a couple of weeks and blend that into throwing somewhere in 18 to 20 weeks. So normal will get guys thrown in there and then it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a 30 to 34 week throwing program until they're getting into, into games. And, you know, and it's obviously varied throughout that of how many bullpens and how many lives they need based on if they're a starter, if they're a reliever, kind of what the expectation is from the, from the organization. So we always, you know, are keeping up to date and doing a needs assessment with our front office of what the expectation is for this athlete. What's the time of the year when they got injured and kind of generally how long a lot of these, you know, injuries as a whole are going to take. So that we definitely uh, incorporate a lot of, um, a lot of those kind of components in to make sure it's as holistic as, you know, as possible. Um, so, but it's, a, it's like I said, it's, it's a long, long process. And, you know, I think it's a little bit easier here. It's just the timing of things make it, make it tough of, you know, where the season's at, you know, based on how long it's going to take to come back, you know, there's fall league, there's winter ball, there's other options. If you're not going to, you know, necessarily throw in season, um, but we normally will, you know, I, my, my philosophy is I try to crush guys with arm care and strengthening as much as possible. And then as soon as they start getting into throwing, when they're getting closer to 90 feet, then you start to drop the arm care a bit since pitching and more of the task specific work is going to start to take over a little bit more of the stimulus from that point. You can't completely think you're going to fatigue them with all this arm care stuff and also, and have them throw and have them continue to feel adapt and, you know, 
feel ready to go each time they throw Like there's got to be as all the functional stuff goes up, then obviously your a little bit of your strengthening and more of your pure stuff like that has got to come down to help to match and blend that stuff together. So I normally find that when guys, it'll take up to one guy start to get to around 75, 90 feet that I can keep them pretty high throwing in some deload weeks in there with strength things. You can't just keep going for, you know, 30, you know, 30 weeks in a row and then expect them to feel good every day. You got to throw some deloads in there too, which I think is a little bit of a pearl that I haven't seen a lot of clinicians do, you know, when you see, and you got to read each athlete, you can't be like, Oh, built in at week, whatever. I'm going to have a deload week of strengthening for this. It's like, no, you got to play it with the ebbs and flows of the season with how the athlete is. If you feel like they, they're looking like they're really tired, you notice their weights are having to decrease their weights because they're just getting fatigued. They're just overall morale is down, you know, you know, and you touch base with them and that's, they just, you just generally get the, the feeling that they're fatigued, you notice their strength and their objective numbers are down a bit or just kind of stalling. It's like, maybe it's a good time for a little bit of a deload, build them back up, get them kind of rest and recovered and allow them to keep, you know, keep going. Cause once they have a good strength base, I mean, you take a week, a week and a half, you know, where you're only strengthening three days a week. And normally once they come back from that deload they they feel fantastic. And we try to merge those times from a strengthening perspective and rehab perspective to really give them a week, week and a half, you know, every eight weeks throughout the program um, to kind of build them down. Cause we know that we're strengthening them and giving them a high sufficient stimulus. Like we, we know that we're not, there's not an underloading issue. We know that if anything, it's potentially an overloading issue. So we know that we have to build in those deload weeks because of what these guys are getting on a day-to-day basis. And I think it provides an increased kind of um, task on us just from a, cause we do a lot of manual work, a lot of perturbations. No, most guys will not do anything where they're just doing bands where they're doing weights or they're doing whatever. There's always a tempo variation. We always are in there giving them some rhythmic staves. We're adding some holds and tempos. There's always some kind of training variations that we have within that. And I think, that is also another thing that is missed a lot of times in programming is being able to periodize that stuff throughout and having potentially a day where you have a concept like a speed strength or speed focus, a day where you have an eccentric focus, a day where you have an isometric focus, and you're kind of doing a little bit of that French contrast stuff where you're kind of blending all these different things in together and then doing some periodization where then you're kind of merging them all together and you're kind of doing that fluctuation of whatnot of what might happen throughout a general, you know, periodization, you know, cycle and whatnot. So I think that's stuff that's, you know, often missed you know, as but I'm, I'm pumped. I'm, I'm ready to go work out right now after <laughs> listening to all that, man. I feel like I'm not doing enough right now. So. <laughs> no, but it's just some stuff that I, you know, I think the guys like, I know we, our guys have gotten a lot of buy-in because they see, we provide a lot of the hands-on treatment, not only with manual stuff, but just with the perturbations that to them, they perceive it like we care more if that even makes a whole lot of sense, but that's what we've been told because we are, they, we don't ever, we're not ever sitting around. We're not ever just sitting there talking. We're always kind of doing something, trying to be as active and as you know helpful as possible. So we know that guys generally get a little bit more out of that when they have hands on them, because what athlete doesn't like to have some kind of hands on them to help to, you know, facilitate some things. So, you know, it's kind of some things that I've learned and I'm definitely very passionate about, about adding and trying to make sure that they're getting as much as they can, you know, with each exercise. So yeah, when, when I'm like thinking about this and I mean, let's, let's just say I'm a young athlete, you know, or there's a coach that's listening to this, who's got an athlete that's injured. I mean, you're communicating so much work that needs to be done and that has to be in the athlete's brain and not only, not only work, but they're, they're challenging themselves in a lot of different ways. You're not, you're not looking at these guys like they're broken. You know what I mean? When I'm, when I'm hearing this, it's like, Hey, now you're mine. We're going to get after it. You're coming out better. You know, here you, you have goals. So this is something too, that a young athlete might not have. They, they get their outpatient report and their programs from the physical therapist and say, Hey, go get them. 
for the next few weeks and they're not making those adjustments, they don't have goals. You know, the athlete needs to have some conversation with their therapist of where do I need to be, you know, and, and if there is an objective process, if they are monitoring their strength, where does my arm strength have to be? Because an ineffective return to performance program, I don't even like saying rehabilitation because I'm, I'm thinking just like you, Luke, and this is what players need to think, hey, I'm going to either return to performance or I'm going to an exceed performance program that if they have objective criteria, this is what we need to give our young athletes. They need to know they're goal-directed, they're competitive. We need to give them that information. You know, if we tell an 18-year-old who's just undergone the knife, you know, that we give them, you know, a, a report that they go and train with and there's no uh, checking in or they're not giving some expectations, they're going to perform below the line. You know, you set a high standard for yourself and we got to get our athletes, our coaches, to set a high standard for them and saying, when you come back, you got to be a monster. You know, obviously, like I liked what you said, you don't disrupt the healing process, but you are doing everything possible to, to keep strong. There's a kid on my block. He's an offensive lineman. He, he rolled his ankle. I think he fractured something, but he's off his feet. And I talked to his parents and say, hey, what's he doing? Oh, well, you know, the, the physical therapist and the physician, they just want him to rest for a while. They don't want him to do anything really for a while, you know, to manage the inflammation. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, man, this kid who is a power athlete needs absolute strength is sitting on the couch when he loves to bench press. He can do rows. He can do pull downs. He could do a seated leg press with one leg. Like there's there's so much that these athletes can do. And, and hearing this is unbelievable. It's like you're you're getting them to performance right away. You're minimizing those strength losses. You know, and young kids don't know this stuff. They're not educated in this way. And, and our, as coaches, I mean, if I'm a coach and I got a kid on the shelf, yeah, I, I want to take some responsibility for him. I'm going to communicate with the physical therapist. I'm going to have conversations with them. I say, what is any, what are all the things I can do with this athlete without disrupting, you know, their, their healing uh, and, and recovery? Because if I have that in mind, you know, I'm pushing this, the, the pedal to the metal. You get a high school kid you know, Jordan uh, uh, undergoes the knife as a, as a high school, high schooler, maybe he's a junior, you know, he's losing opportunities to be scouted. You know, we saw it when we were in the draft room, there are certain players who are like, well, we don't know what he's going to be like, because if we bring him in, we already have a big RTP program. We already have a lot of athletes to rehabilitate. And sometimes those kids get left alone, you know, and they're on their, uh, by the wayside. And you're creating something that is the key word for me is accountability. We have to teach our young athletes. They got to be accountable for their health when they're healthy and they got to be accountable for their recovery when they're injured. You know, they, they have to, they have to do the work. So man, this is awesome to hear. Yeah. I think that this is great. Um, Luke, thank you for being on. Um, we're at an hour. We could probably go <laughs> on and on. Um, would, would love to hear more. I can tell, I mean, just, just listening to you talk, you, you said you were passionate about it. It's obvious how passionate you are about it. And, uh, you know, if, if I was coming in there, I'd, I'd be stoked for sure to be in there. So <laughs> yeah, listen, thank you. Um, Jordan Ryan, you got anything else or no Nothing. great podcast. All right. Yeah. Great podcast. And you know, if you guys have anyone listen, please subscribe. If you got any questions, please reach out to us. Um, we'll get back and, um, you know, until next time, take care.